Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above, or in earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male servant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his manservant or maidservant his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Amen. Super. Well, as the boys and girls head out, if you can open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, and we're really going to zoom in in verses 4 through 6. So verses 4 through 6 uh, as we work through our second commandment. Now, as a good Presbyterian, if you are a good Presbyterian this morning, you'll know what is man's chief end. And if you wonder what on earth am I talking about in that moment, it's the catechism, the shorter catechism. What is man's chief end? It is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. What is man's purpose? It is really to worship the Lord our God. That is our purpose, to worship the Lord our God and to enjoy Him forever. That's who we've been made uh, to be. We are made to be worshipers. We're made to be servers of the living God. And, and maybe a question that we have this morning then is, what is worship? That's what we're going to think about today is worship. So what is worship? Especially for some of our young people, if you're trying to take notes and you're thinking about what is worship, it's not just the music that we sing. That's our praise. Worship is what we do as we come in to the meeting house each Sunday. So here's what John Calvin says, it'll come up on the screen for us, worship involves acknowledging God to be 
as he is the only source of all virtue, justice, holiness, wisdom, truth, power, goodness, mercy, life, and salvation. And so Calvin goes on to say, thus that we should ascribe and render to him the glory of all that is good, to seek all things in him alone, and in every want to have recourse to him alone. What's Calvin saying to us? He's saying that all of our lives have to be focused on the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In him is all that we need, all virtue and justice and holiness and wisdom and truth and power and goodness and mercy and life and salvation is in him. So this is what worship is, to ascribe that onto the Lord, to give glory to him, to praise him. But the question then that we have is, how should we worship him? How should we worship our God? Can we worship Him any, any way that we wish? Is it up to us to decide? Well, in one sense, you could say to me, all of life is worship, and that's true in a sense. But whenever it comes to gathered worship, what we do on the Lord's Day, morning and evening, as we come here for corporate worship, is it a free-for-all? Is it down to our initiative? Do we rely on our creativity? And if we were relying on that, I think I'll speak for myself, I'll not speak for Nigel, but you would be struggling, wouldn't you, if it was all down to our creativity? Is worship dictated to by the trends in society, by our culture, and swayed by it? Well, no, it's not. Has God left us in the dark for how we should worship Him? Well, no, He hasn't. This is the good news. We worship God in the way that He has told us to worship Him. We worship God in the way that He has told us to worship Him. Within the Reformed faith, we call this the regulative principle. And what does that fancy title mean? It simply means that we worship the Lord in the way that He has told us to worship Him in His Word. And so we sing His praise. We pray to Him. We read from His Word. We preach on His Word. And then we are sent out with a blessing. In other words, we worship God the way that He wants to be worshipped. So the first commandment is against worshipping the wrong God, and the second commandment is to warn us that is, is about uh, worshipping the right God in the wrong way. Worshipping the right God in the wrong way. And so verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am the Lord your God. Now, the question that we have instantly, perhaps that pops into your mind is, well, what about all of the, the wonderful paintings that we have? What about all of the famous artwork that we have? What about our nativity scenes? Do we, do we just need to to throw them all out into the skip. What do we do with these? Well, hold that thought, and hopefully as we step our way through this commandment this morning, we'll understand how, how it is that we worship God appropriately. Now, if you missed last week, a helpful recap for us. What are the Ten Commandments? Well, we want to treasure, treasure them and, and cherish the Ten Commandments because they're given to God's people for their flourishing, for our flourishing. 
Look at how they're given to us. Verse 1, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What do we notice about this? The the Ten Commandments are not just a a cold download. They're not the Lord just writing on a piece of paper, ten rules for life, throwing them at us and telling us all the best, get on with those. The Lord gives His commandments in what? In relationship to His people. I I have taken you out of Egypt. I have rescued you from under the the heavy hand of slavery. And so here are the the ten best ways. The ten ways that you will live your life and you will flourish. And they reveal, as we thought about last week, the nature of our God. But then, then come with me to verse 19. What's the people's response? As they hear these words, the people are full of fear. Verse 19, speak to us yourself, and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us, or we will die. Moses' word to the people in verse 20 is, do not be afraid. God has given this to you. The Lord has given His law to protect His people. And so again, young people, to reiterate this for you and for ourselves, what what is the law? It's a fence to keep us in. It's a mirror to reveal our sin. And it is a map for how to live our lives, a fence, a mirror, and a map. Now, specifically, whenever we come to the second commandment, what do we want to see today? We want to see two things. We want to see that if we get this wrong, we will distort our view of God. And if we get this commandment wrong, we will divert our worship of God. So, distort and then to divert. So, first of all, to distort if you're on Facebook or if you're on Instagram and you hear about someone, maybe someone mentions a name, what is the first thing that you do, especially if you have Instagram or if you have Facebook? It's called stalking, right? So if you're not familiar with this, you can search anyone's name in Instagram or in Facebook. And what you do is you, you instantly put in their name and you find, yes, they live in Portadown, they live in Lurgan, they live in Armagh, that must be them. And you click onto their profile picture and you start to scroll and then you go down to their photos, and you scroll down those and, and to all of their posts. And the thing is, you might never have met this person, but instantly you start to form a character judgment based on their photographs. Oh, well, there they must be up the mountains. They must like walking, or, or there they are with an ice cream. I wonder what brand of ice cream it is. Do you know what it is? And you start to make assumptions about the person based on a few little pictures. We judge people based upon an image. And how often we get them wrong. You see, to judge someone based on an image is to reduce their whole character down to that image. We go onto Facebook, we go onto Instagram, maybe even it happens in church. We see someone across the church that we don't know, and we have an image of that person, and we we shrink their character all the way down, and we distort it based on an image. We distort who the person really is. And this is the threat. This is the problem if we get verse 4 wrong. If we get verse 4 wrong and we make for ourselves an idol, an idol in the form of anything on heaven above or on earth beneath, what is the problem? The problem is that we start to distort our God. 
We start to shrink him down. We start to try and make him containable. And as we shrink him, we distort his character. In just a few chapters' time in the book of Exodus, in chapter 32, if you come over a couple of pages with me, to 32, the children of Israel are going to do the exact thing that they have been told not to do in this commandment. And so in Exodus 32, you'll read the account of the golden calf, but but come with me to verse 4. Aaron takes the gold, and, and in verse 4, he took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf and fashioned it with a tool. And then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. What's the frightening thing that happens in Exodus 32? The frightening thing is that the people are not worshiping Baal. They haven't turned to to idol worship in that sense. This is worshiping the right God in the wrong way. They are still worshiping Yahweh, the Lord our God, the one who has brought them out of Egypt. But they're doing it in the wrong way. Aaron thinks that this is a great idea. We'll, we'll melt down all of our gold. We'll, we'll make this beautiful golden calf. It'll not be like the, the bull of, of Egypt, the, the supreme god of Egypt. We'll make it different. Surely everyone will know. But in that moment, as he, as he melts down all of the gold and as he starts to fashion it and shape it to be this image of a calf, what does he do? He takes God and he minimizes God. He shrinks God down into this lump of gold. And as he does that, he distorts it. He distorts who our God is. He distorts everything about him. Jen Welkin, in the little book that we recommended last week and we put up on Facebook and Instagram, it's a helpful book uh, as we think and work through the Ten Commandments, maybe something that you wish to, to buy as we go through this series. Jen, in her book, says this about the golden calf. It's, she says that the golden calf shows us and reveals to us lies that are told whenever we make an idol. Because as we think about the calf, she says, it is small, but God is immense. The calf is unresponsive, but God is alive. It is location-bound, the calf, but God is everywhere, always present. It is created. God is uncreated. It is new. God is eternal. It is helpless, but God is all-powerful. It is destructible, but God is indestructible. It is of minor value, and God is of infinite value. It is blind and deaf and mute, but God sees and hears and speaks. See what happens whenever we create an image? It will corrupt and corrode. But our God will endure forever. It can be seized and taken if we create an image, but our God is unconquerable. And so in every way, to try and reduce God down to an image instantly distorts Him because there's no image grand enough. There's no sculpture beautiful enough. No painting stupendous enough to capture our God. So nothing can do credit to the invisible God, the all-powerful, all-knowing, 
all-present, eternal God. But you maybe say to me, well, John, this morning, we're not tempted to do that. We're not tempted to take all of our earrings and our rings and our necklaces and bracelets and our watches and to, to melt them down. I think if Nigel came back from Armagh Road and we had fashioned a calf, he would wonder what had gone wrong this morning in public worship. We're maybe not tempted to do that, but what we are tempted to do is to shrink God down in our minds. We do this, this exact thing in our heads, don't we? We construct our own image of God. Because as Aaron takes the gold, he shrinks down Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he, he makes him in his own image, doesn't he? He doesn't make him a bull, but he makes him like a, a gentle calf. He takes away the horrible things of the culture of Egypt, and he makes this much more tolerable idol. And so too it is in our minds. We start to construct God. We think of God being a God of love, but not a God of wrath. We think about God being a God of mercy, but not of justice. He's a God of forgiveness, but He's not one that calls for obedience. We, we like to think that God is obsessed with our happiness, but not with our holiness. See how we start to do this? See how we start to shrink Him, distort Him, create a, a version of God? And that's the problem right now that we face in our society. Young people, that's the problem that you will face in your schools. The society around us trying to shape God, mold God, change Him for us. Uh, you need to take away that piece of His character. You need to take away that piece that, that the Bible talks about distorting God. And so, to fashion God physically, which we're unlikely to do, but mentally, will reduce the Lord and distort His character. Here's what one commentator says about this. Talking about this, why, why are we so against images, this idolatry of imagery, of trying to contain our God in an item? Because what happens in that moment is that we infuse, the commentator says, we infuse it with spiritual power. You can imagine that if, if we had a golden calf out in the welcome area, what would we all do? We would maybe rub it on the way past, or we would, we would kiss its hoof, or, or we, would, we would bring things to it and lay down flowers and money and all this nonsense before it, wouldn't we? Because we would think that the item itself had some sort of spiritual power. That's the exact thing God says. You cannot do. I am the invisible God. I'm so much more powerful than that. You do not come to an item. And so what we are talking about in this is that we don't treat a particular item or a relic as if it has divine power. We do not touch or kiss or carry or bow down or stand close to some thing that we think will help us, will give us some sort of grace or some sort of spiritual experience. This is the prohibiting of reducing God down to an image. And so, this is a wonderful command because it ensures that we have a large view of our God. 
We keep him in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, and we cannot reduce him down. We cannot contain him. We cannot make a bite-sized version of our God. So let me take an aside here for a moment. What about images of Jesus? What do we do with images of Jesus? Well, what we want to say here is that we want all of us as a church to exercise extreme caution. We want to exercise extreme caution whenever it comes to images of Jesus. Every children's Bible will have a picture of Jesus. It's usually a picture of a, a man with long hair and with a beard and with a, a white gown with some sort of blue sash on him. And in our society, in this Western society, that image will always be portrayed as Jesus being white. But if we go to Asia, they will have a, a different depiction of Jesus. Or if we go to Africa, we will have a different depiction of Jesus. And so, in a sense, that, that is helpful for us. It's helpful because we're not saying that we have this specific idea of what Jesus must look like. We're identifying that He really was a man, fully God and fully man. We are not spiritualizing Him away, but that it's helpful for some of our children to, to know that, to see a physical depiction of who Jesus really is. But the problem comes whenever we think that this is the exact image of who God was, the Word made flesh. We do not have a, a camera photograph of what Jesus looked like, and that's good for us. Because if we did, what would we be tempted to do? We'd be tempted to bow down and to worship that image. We don't know what He looked like. We don't know what He, he physically appeared like. So it's good to know that he's not a fictional character, that he really was a man, and he really did walk this earth. But the problems start to arise whenever we infuse power to an image of Jesus, or we believe that a particular image of Jesus should be worshipped, or if we use an image of Jesus to, to focus us in our prayers, if we use an image of Jesus to start to reflect upon then we are stepping beyond the second commandment. And so this is tricky for us, but our line is that we should exercise great caution whenever it comes to images of Jesus. Distorted. Let's then move into diverting our worship. The Lord knows that our hearts are prone to wonder. We sing that all the time. Our hearts are, are prone to, to take distractions and, and to have diversions and detours. If, if, you, if you think about us sitting in a, in a classroom, how often a student gets distracted, a squirrel or a bird can become the most interesting thing as they look out the window. I know that whenever we preach sermons that everything in your mind can become interesting other than what we're preaching on. We're easily distracted, easily diverted in our worship. But here we don't want to be diverted. We want, to we want to worship the, the image of the true God, and we want to find out how we can do that. We want to not be diverted in our worship. Now, the children of Israel, they were enthusiastic in Exodus 32. Their hearts were in the right place, weren't they? And yet they worshiped God, the right God, in the wrong way. So how are we to worship? 
Well, we're to worship God as we come along to church. We're to worship Him through His Word, through the singing of His praise, through prayer. We're to do it together. We're to be in the room with one another. And then privately, we have to be in the place of prayer and in His Word too. It's helpful for us to recognize that in the second commandment, that we have been made for Him and not He for us. We have been made for Him. That order is vitally important. And so we give worship back to Him. It's due to Him. To divert our worship to anyone else, to anything else, is, let's call it for what it is, is utter blasphemy. If we start to worship ourselves like we thought about last week, it's blasphemy. If we start to promote ourselves, it's me and it's my way, it's my rules that I'm going to play by, then it's blasphemy to worship God in any other way than what He tells us. It's blasphemy. It's offensive to God. It's the essence of sin. It's to go beyond what He has told us. And so it's serious stuff for us today. The second commandment is serious for us. Look at verse 5. What's going on in verse 5? You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What's going on? Punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and to the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is serious. And what is happening in this moment, it's not a reference to generational curses or to hexes or demonic oppression, nor does it mean that a righteous child will be punished unfairly for the sins of his wicked father. That is not what is going on. How do we know that? Well, we know it because of Ezekiel 18 and 20. If you're taking notes, that'll be helpful for you later on to look at. But in Ezekiel 18 and 20, it says this, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Each human will face judgment for their own actions. So what is going on here in Exodus 20? If that's not what it is, what what is going on? Well, it's this. It's a warning to children that walk in the wicked ways of their parents. The children that share in their, children will share in their father's punishment because they share in their father's sins, says Kevin Dion. Understand that? Children share in their father's punishment because they share in their father's sins. It's as if the parents, whatever road that you walk down, whatever path you take your children down, That will have consequences, children, if you follow that path. It will either have great consequences as you follow uh, your parents into godliness, but similarly, if you walk down a wicked path, then you will endure the same punishment as your father. And so, a word here to parents. Parents, what you're doing with your children is extremely important. What you model for your children is extremely important. You cannot outsource their faith to us as a church. You can't say that it's all down to the youth leader or to the Sunday school teacher. 
that we all, all that we need to do as parents is to bring them here, and they'll be okay. Now, it's not less than that, but it's so much more. As parents, what are you to do? Deuteronomy says, teach it to your children when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, that, that as parents, what do you have to model? And especially for fathers, you have to model that, that Jesus means everything to you that you are not making an image and, and worshiping some other idol, that you're not worshiping a football team or a sport more than Jesus. If you get more excited about our, our football or about our sport or about your car or about whatever else, what does that communicate to your child? It communicates that that is so much more important than Jesus. So, fathers. And mothers, what do you model in the home? That Jesus is more important to this family than anything else. That yes, we, we maybe don't always get it right. Sometimes we're tired and we're frustrated. Sometimes we don't feel like going to church. Sometimes we don't feel like praying or reading our Bibles. But you know what? We're going to do it. Because He is the living God. He's the one that we worship. He's the one that we need. And so please model it in our homes, parents. Fathers and mothers, if you are not excited about Jesus, if Jesus doesn't mean all to you, if he just kind of means 50% to you, then be assured that he is very likely to mean nothing to your children. If mom and dad don't think going to church and worshiping Jesus is important, then why would I? And this brings us to our final point, and just in a couple of words, what's the call then this morning? Don't distort God, don't shrink Him, don't divert our worship off into other places, into other things, and instead devote ourselves in the worship of God. This morning, that's the call for us as a church family, for all of us to be all in, as it were. Lord, Lord, You have my heart you have everything in my life. That we understand that He is limitless and infinite and uncomprehensible. That, that, that we bow down and worship of Him. That we realize that He is the one that we owe our lives to. That we see God. And how do we see Him this morning? Not through an image but we see Him in His Word. The Lord has revealed Himself, not in a picture. He has chosen to reveal Himself to us in His Word. And He's chosen to reveal Himself in the living Word, the Word made flesh in His Son, the Lord Jesus. And this book records all that we need to know about Him. And so as we come back to devoted worship, as we commit ourselves and worship again today, what is central to all of that is the Word of God. This is where we see Him. This is where we find Him. This is where we hear what He is like. How shall we believe if we have not heard? It's all in His Word. And then Jesus says to us that, that whoever has seen Him has seen the Father. Whoever encounters Christ through the pages of Scripture has seen the Father. And so, this is the appropriate way to worship, through the Word. 
Just like we began our time together, long ago and in many times, the Lord spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. And it's contained here. This is all we need as we read about our God and hear who He is and what He is like. So come back this morning. Come back in our worship. Come back to the fundamentals of worship. Come back to being a people of God who love to worship here Sunday morning and Sunday evening with your church family. And then know that this is a blessing from the Lord. Verse 6, but His love will be shown to a thousand generations of those who keep His commandments. This is the best way to live our lives, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to lift high Jesus' name. Whenever we come to worship, whenever we set our hearts to worship, then we will start to live. Then we'll start to have joy. Then we'll know our Savior, and we'll be full and revived and refreshed and enabled to live for Him.